Is fiction good for anything, and if so, what? Spoiler warning, this episode is going to be pro-fiction. I'm Susanna Roundtree, author of multiple works of historical fantasy, and this is Kate Robinson, author of the middle grade fantasy novel Finding Fairy Tales, and we are the Monstrous Regiment. Hi, Kate. Hello. I'm so glad to be here. Yes, this is an episode we've been planning on for a while, obviously, and I think the first thing we wanted to talk about was the legitimacy of fiction as Dominion work. Um... This is the question, is fiction something that Christians should even sink good time, energy and money into? Is it a serious pursuit? I mean, look at us. We could be we could be preaching to the lost. We could be saving babies from abortion. We could be fighting racial discrimination, uh, learning engineering, finding a cure for cancer, solving world poverty. I mean, why with all these avenues open to us would we choose to sink our lives into building imaginary worlds? Uh, we want to explain, but we thought we'd do it via a list of some common myths that we've heard, especially as we've grown up in conservative Christian circles. So myth number one is fiction is lies. So, oh uh, wow, <laughs> we probably need to do a whole episode on the biblical definition of false witness one day, because I think Christians do get really confused about this whole idea, whole idea of truth, lies, and how to judge between them. Um, anyway, so I've, I've known some people who genuinely believe that fiction is lies and, you know, I even had one friend tell me once, um, don't you tell lies for a living? And I actually thought it was quite refreshing because at least she was honest about it. I mean, I've had a number of friends who were mostly polite about it, but who would then let it, just let it slip occasionally that they don't really think a lot of fiction and, you know, all of us make life choices that our friends disagree with, so that's fine, but... <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it still seems a little rude, but okay. Oh, I don't mind. Anyway, anyway, it's interesting because I was having one argument with a friend who didn't think much of fiction. And um, I used to point to the parables of Jesus. And, you know, as we know, Jesus often had a parable to match up with what he was trying to teach his disciples. And I just always assumed that he was coming up with his parables, making them up in order to suit the occasion. Well, um... When I mentioned this to my friend, my, my friend pointed out that for all I knew, Jesus could have simply been telling true stories about people that he actually knew about. You know, maybe he read the papers. So all those stories about the, the Good Samaritan, the prodigal son, the, the foolish virgins, um, he was arguing that these stories were probably actual historical events that Jesus referred to, to make his point. Yeah. So I'm... Sorry, go Sorry. ahead. No, that's good. I when you I read that in your notes and I thought that was really interesting in terms of like the story of Lazarus out you know and Abraham and mm -hmm. the their interaction and it just seems like I know this wasn't it's a little off topic, but it just seems like some some theologies you have to actually stretch, you know, to make it as literal as people want it to be. Hmm. Yeah, and um, I, I'm, I'm, I wouldn't want to say that I think that it's impossible that you know Jesus was referring to things that had actually happened. Like I, I assume he probably would have known what was going on in Sheol, and so you know, sure, maybe maybe some or all the parables were based on real events. But what I'm saying is that the moral distinction escapes me. Um, from the world, human characters in history, what 
prevents him from creating imaginary characters within a story. I mean, why is it why is it right for Jesus to call all things into existence with the word of his power, but it's wrong for him to invent a parable about a man being set upon by robbers? Um, and, and this is a particularly important point because, as J.R.R. Tolkien pointed out, we are made in God's image. God is a creator, and therefore we are sub-creators. We make in the image in which we're made is I think an actual line from a Tolkien poem that is explaining this topic. Um, and I mean the first man in scripture who is described as being filled with the Holy Spirit is Bezalel the son of Uri, the master artist who worked on the tabernacle in Exodus. So um, so sub-creation is a Holy Spirit inspired work which not just Jesus but all men and women might be called to do. Right and I think that's a key point, us being created in the image of God I think is an absolutely key point. And I think it's even a powerful apologetic point. I mean, we live in a world that is full of sub-creators. Um, and any time you have something that's being created, then that, that means there must be a, a creator. So the fact that we live in a world that has sub-creators and sub-created worlds really is evidence for God because we live in a, in a world and we you know, the things we create are made on a, um, on the pattern of this world. And so it makes sense that if, if we live in a world that has creators, then we live in a world that was created. So the only, the only possible ethical problem with storytelling and truth would be, I think, if someone believed that the fictional story was real and that something bad happened to them because of that. So let's talk about the truth for a minute. In biblical ethics, truth is covenantal, which is to say it is in part relational. We have an obligation to give the full truth to those who are under our care or who would be oppressed if we withheld it. We have an obligation not to bear false witness against our neighbour or to deny God before men, but we have no obligation to give the truth to Nazis who are searching a house for Jews or resistance fighters. When God said that he, <laughs> when God said that he hated lying lips, he obviously did not mean the midwives who lied to Pharaoh to protect the newborn Israelite babies and who were then praised for their faith by the author of Hebrews. Now, don't get me wrong, and this is very important. I'm not saying that it's good to tell a lot of lies, and I don't think that we should ever be blasé about the truth. What I'm saying is that we don't always owe it to people to tell them the full truth. Uh, Rajdini points this out in the Institutes of Biblical Law. This is the whole basis of our right to privacy. We don't owe the whole truth to everyone all the time unless withholding that truth would um, hurt the innocent. What I'm saying is that if you tell a story to a room full of school children and despite your best efforts, there's one five-year-old who goes home in a state of confusion and his mother has to let him know that the goose with the golden eggs is just a made-up story, then you haven't actually committed some horrible crime against the truth. Right. I think that saying that fiction is lies is a pretty bizarre thing to say. Um, very few people are ever confused over whether the latest Marvel movie actually happened or not. I mean, we know these things aren't documentaries. We know that when we say it once upon a time, that what follows isn't going to be a historical event. And, um, and I think that when Jesus says the kingdom of God is like, he's drawing comparisons, he's using analogies, and the factual content of what he's saying is not the most important thing. So the important thing is that Jesus' parables sneak past our rational defences to give us a vivid picture of exactly what he was trying to tell us that goes straight to our hearts. In fact, 
I think one of the most powerful um, occasions where we see the use of a parable in scripture is not one of Jesus' parables so much as um, when King David committed adultery with Bathsheba and tried to use murder to cover it up. Now the prophet Nathan could have confronted David and said, what part of do not kill and do not commit adultery do you not understand? But he didn't. He, he told David a story because he knew that David had already hardened his heart against the Ten Commandments. He needed to have his conscience reawakened in a way that he wasn't expecting. And so regardless of whether a literal rich man had stolen a literal ewe lamb or not, the whole point of the story was this deeper truth that, that this is what King David had done and he deserved to die. He, Nathan used this story not to communicate the truth about some form of livestock theft happening somewhere in Israel, but to communicate the truth about what David had just done to Uriah and Bathsheba. Right. So when we write, when we write fictional narratives, we're creating in God's image. We're creating stories that the majority of people will realize are fictional. And we're using these stories to communicate some form of truth about the world we live in. So no, fiction is not lies. Yeah, um, I, I agree with all that. And I would just... Um as you're talking, I just comment on a few things that you said. Um, I agree. We, we need to eventually do an episode entirely about what is and isn't false witness because it's, you know, you said something a moment ago about, um, about it not being factually correct that the rich man had stolen the, the sheep or whatever. And it is certainly possible to make a statement that is factually incorrect. That is still true or that is in service mm -hmm. of the truth. You know, you brought up hiding Jews in your basement and um, and saying that you do not have Jews in your basement is, if you do, factually incorrect. But it is um, totally in agreement with the truth of God's word, the truth that Jews are created in the image of God, that hunting them down and killing them is evil, that protecting them is righteous. And in the same way, you can make statements that are factually correct, that are still lies. You know, if you if you say to your husband, no, I promise I did not cheat on you last night because technically you did cheat on him this morning. You've made a factually correct statement that is still a lie, you know. And I think it's sort of the heart of, maybe not the heart of, but a, a indicator of Phariseeism when people sort of strain at gnats and are are razor focused on um, a technicality causing them to miss the entire real issue at heart. Um, I think Christians I think Christians do tend to focus on verbal technicalities rather than rather than um, the ethical judicial the picture ethical of what's judicial going picture of what's Yes, going. exactly. So, and I think because so, it makes it easier for us if we have like really hard and fast rules that we can hold on to. Never lie. Okay, so I can just stick to that and never really deal with the ethical um, quandaries and the crises of conscience that, that those situations put me in. You know, and yeah. I think there are... Yeah. What, what concerns is, me about that is, is that you, you, can is have somebody you, you can have somebody say, you know, say, you know I'm not going to verbally lie to you, but I will conceal the truth from you. Exactly. And that would be fine. And that exactly. Would be fine. You can be completely technically truthful and still be intentionally deceiving and misleading in harmful ways. Um, and that's why in so many of the things that, that Jesus communicated to us, it's about the heart of the issue, not about, you know, certain crossing certain technical lines here and there. 
Um, you know, and like you said, Jesus used fictional stories all the time to illuminate true principles that he wanted us to understand, to get past our intellect and our own understanding that we thought we had of various things and move us on a sort of on a different level, which is something, and, and we'll get into this a little bit later, but I think that's something that fiction does is it is it presents um, moral quandaries and questions that that you don't have to answer um, in a way that affects your own life at the moment, but it presents it to you and asks you to answer it and think through it and comb through the intricacies of it in a way that um, it is good because you're not nothing of yours is on the line at the moment and it, it gets past it's all great. it's yeah training. exactly and I think the people that I've met that have or not all of them but some of the people that I've met that have had the sort of fiction is lies attitude it's a lot of times in context of like parents reading to their children good well-intentioned Christian parents um, you know don't want to tell their children lies or they don't want to confuse them about whether the Bible is true and they say to themselves well, if I tell them that there's a god in the sky that they can't see, and then I also read them fairy tales, to them it's all going to be fairy tales, and I'm going to cause them not to believe in God. Which, I think many of these people have, have good intentions and just haven't thought through the implications of that, but unfortunately it speaks either to their faith or to their understanding of scripture or to their apologetics that they that they themselves put those things on the same level my parents read to me all the time when i was growing up and i was never for one second tempted to believe that you know the hobbit was a true story and there's so much i mean if you understand scripture and that's the basis for your worldview there's a there's a rich historical and evidential foundation for believing that god is real and that these things happen and if you're not able to communicate to your children the difference, if your children find the story about Cinderella as compelling as the Bible story you read them, you should be concerned that the version of Christianity that you're presenting to your children is is not more compelling than a children's story, you know, or not more more rich or more nuanced. And, and if it is, if it is compelling, I mean, speaking as Speaking of someone who grew up with a um, a rather quenching um, Bible study curriculum when I was a little homeschooler, <laughs> um, I always I always found stories like Tolkien and C.S. Lewis far more um, imaginatively and emotionally satisfying sure. than scripture. Sure, but you didn't but find them more believable. I was able to look through the story. To, to the truth of scripture that the stories were intentionally pointing towards. Right. And that, you know, that's a way of doing it too. Yeah, exactly. I totally agree with that. Okay, so our second myth was fiction is a waste of time or unholy. And uh, I was going to keep my remarks on this one pretty short. A lot of people think that fiction is basically fluff. Um, but as any serious writer or indeed reader, can tell you, fiction is actually an art of staggering complexity. It's also really difficult to master. Um, Paul Johnson, the famous historian, once put it this way. He said, creative writing is intellectual drudgery of the hardest kind. And this was a man who wrote massive history books for a living. That is not 
easy to do. It requires a huge amount of research and the ability to organize um, information well. Um, but he had obviously tried writing fiction and had come away knowing that it was brutally difficult work. And not only that, um, fiction calls for the author to master a ton of different skills and to use them in a very complex and mature way all at the same time. And when you when you read a book that's been skillfully written like this, you often have to work equally hard to get the most out of it. Um, I actually often read non-fiction to relax and unwind because my brain is always working so hard when I read fiction. And as a quick aside, this is this is not to say that there isn't a place for fluffy, mindless fiction. It does exist and it can be very good. I've recently had a lot to worry about in my life and I found myself doing something very unusual. I scarfed down a few short, fluffy, feel-good novels that were good, clean, fun and just really helped to distract me from my worries and give me a sense of refreshing, refreshment. Um, they're a real blessing to me at this season and I don't consider them to be at all contemptible compared to the more challenging stuff I normally read. But overall, I would say that if anyone thinks that fiction is a waste of time, that's not necessarily a problem with the fiction, it's much more likely a problem with the reader. Um, if you learn how to get the most out of your fiction reading, you, you will work a lot harder when you're reading fiction and you'll definitely be thinking and learning more. Yeah. I, I think part of it is just Gnosticism too. There's a um, there's this idea, especially in certain circles, there's this unhealthy separation of the secular and the holy, and uh, and people have this idea that anything that is entertainment or that is art or appreciating beauty for its own sake is um, is unholy that anything anytime that you're not working or cooking or doing whatever it is that you're supposed to be doing to earn a living you should be doing something spiritual and by uh, spiritual yeah. they didn't, mean didn't. street preaching or you know sorry go ahead uh, I was gonna say didn't we didn't we get a good look at that um, viewpoint with the um, with the Notre Dame fire last week yes we did yes we did I mean I just kept on thinking of the um, passage in scripture where um, was it Mary Magdalene um, takes a takes a jar of expensive ointment and uses it to anoint Jesus' feet and um, and, and the people are standing nearby saying you know she, what a waste she could have sold it and and given the money to the poor and instead she's just wasting it on Jesus and um, you know there's a the Bible um, the Bible. Um, Old Testament law, you have the um, the rejoicing tithe, which was um, a ten percent um, of your income that you were supposed to spend on having fun and whatever your heart desired. And you, you sure you did share it with the poor people, but you weren't um, you weren't using it to um, build them houses and things. You were using it to give them. A pleasant experience, a joyful experience. Right. Not everything has to be, and I, I get it. Like, I don't want to be too hard on people. I get it because there is a tremendous amount of apathy within um, the church and within society about injustice, about the poor, about the oppressed and the needy. And we should be spending more of our time um, loving and serving those people. Um, but it's just it, the idea that... Um, if you're abiding in Christ, it doesn't mean that every spare moment that you have is spent on a bullhorn, on a street corner, 
or mm-hmm. cooking soup in a soup kitchen or something, it means that you can read a book and take a bath and take a walk and be with your spouse to God's glory, you know, and and in, and have his lordship. I think it's a denial of the lordship of Christ and all that we do when we try to sort of act like anything having to do. I mean, it is just Gnosticism. Anything having to do with pleasure or mm. art or entertainment must be satanic and we must abandon it. And the people who sort of talk that way, I don't think even they forego all entertainment. I think they just find ways to feel not guilty feel guilty about, about it, about it. Yeah. or they feel guilty about it when they do it <laughs> or they try to sort of browbeat other people into not doing what and there is there is a balance there is a bread and circuses sort of environment about mm-hmm. some things and there is a place for saying why are we spending all our national attention on the super bowl and ignoring this or that um thing but it it doesn't mean that there's no place for reading fiction or for watching movies or for relaxing yeah. with your family and with other people and enjoying works of human ingenuity it. like Notre Dame. Yeah. I mean, the way I see it, um, if you're writing, if you're writing fiction, it can be, it can be something that even the poor and oppressed need as refreshment as a lifting of the spirits. And not only that, but, you know, um, well, I, it's actually interesting. I read I read a book by Virginia Postrel once called The Substance of Style, and it was all about, you know, design details purely to make things look beautiful. And one, one of the points she made in that book was that people who are very poor still spend some of their money on adornment. Um and she she said, you know, it would it would take a significant um, expense to um, to build a better house or to raise the um, the living standard in some other way. But everyone can afford to put a braid in their hair or, or carve something pretty on a comb, and so they do. Um, so yeah, and and so even poor people like beautiful things and like to be able to walk inside a something like Notre Dame if they live in the area. And um, and on top of that, for someone like me, I'm working hard to sell a lot of my books. One of the things that's constantly on my mind as I work to build my um, publishing business is um, I want to be able to support myself and give to others. Um, and so that's another way that um, making art can actually be a help to um, a help in the in kingdom work. Absolutely. And you're right, it, it does lift the spirits. And it, I mean, you know, like you said earlier, the people who who God ordained to um, weave the fabrics for the temple were artists, skilled artists who were full of the Holy Spirit. They didn't, it wasn't as sober and barren as possible to communicate its holiness. It was rich and full of, you know, beautiful carvings and, symbols <laughs> my dad loves to tell the story of um a christian friend of his who walked into a um a reformed presbyterian church and looked around in horror and said these people have been robbed <laughs> <laughs> someone's coming and cleaned out their church yeah <laughs> 
<laughs> and it's, I mean, again, there's always a balance. I've, I've walked into churches and thought, goodness, you spent $10,000 on that? Why? For what, you know, what are you doing for the kingdom that's actually helpful, that helps people? And I guess it just depends on, it's like everything else. You can't set up a hard and fast rule. Churches can only spend X amount on adornment and the rest has to go to the soup kitchen. It has to be about whether we're abiding in Christ and, and serving God in everything that we do. But I think we just tend to swing too far to the Gnosticism side of things sometimes. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, our next myth is fiction is not as important as nonfiction. Fiction is not as important. See, this one's difficult for me because um, I I don't read a lot of nonfiction. <laughs> I read some. <laughs> I, I do think that nonfiction is important and it helps enlighten things. And But I have so little time to read that when I read, it's usually for the purpose of relaxing or enjoyment. And so I don't read a lot of nonfiction. But um, I've met a lot of people who think that we should only read the Bible or theology books or, or something like that. And, you know, we covered a lot of this earlier, but to me, fiction gives people, gives you a a bird's eye perspective of situations, um, and sort of places real life, identifiable, identifiable situations in a microcosm, um, so that you can have a perspective to understand your own life by the lens through which to see the things that are difficult for you. I was thinking about a situation from 10, 10 years ago or so where I was up all night crying out to God in distress about this situation. And I was so sure that I knew exactly what his will was for it and that there was no way that there could be any other solution. And I look back now understanding all of the other factors that I didn't know about at the time and understanding why, um, what I was praying for was not good and would not have been good had God answered that prayer. And it's fine. God walks us through those things and it takes a long time and it's a part of sanctification. But I think it's edifying to have these sort of smaller worlds that you can engage in and see all the things the author's doing and all of the different factors and get to that sort of place of justice is done in a matter of hours or weeks um, and it's to me, it's encouraging to my heart <laughs> to read things like that and to be presented with those difficulties and um, and understand that there we are created in the image of God and that there's an author of all things. Um, and and I think that all good fiction does do that, even if it's even if it doesn't mean to. Yeah, well, we'll talk about this in a bit more depth a bit later, but um, I think that's an important point. Like when you're reading a book, it's really the end that shows what everything was building towards and helps everything make sense and shows justice being done. And the thing about this world, the reason why so many people can get away with saying that, um, you know, the world isn't tidy and, you know, justice isn't necessarily done for people the only reason people can get away with saying that is because it hasn't wrapped up yet. We haven't had the final judgment. And so when we read fiction, it, it does help to satisfy that longing for justice that we have. Right. Yeah. Anyway, so 
the idea that fiction is not as important as nonfiction is something that I've heard a lot as well. Um, people will say, why do you read all these novels when you could be reading something worthwhile, like a good biography or something? Um, <laughs> fact is, I, I actually do, I am always reading a good nonfiction book. Um, I'm currently live tweeting my way through an academic um, scholarly work on medicine in the Crusades. <laughs> <laughs> it's been super fun but you know I mean even Bajar Marinov recently said that technical non-fiction how-to manuals are more important than fiction and so you know I get it I, I get that point of view I'm super grateful to Bajar for the emphasis he puts on science and technology um, but I actually believe that fiction and non-fiction are equally important and the reason they're equally important is because they are so different they're so complementary and they aim at achieving different things right um, and, you know, as, as we were talking about this episode, we came up with a whole list of things that you can only learn from fiction. I think the most important one is the ability to look at the world in an imaginative and an intuitive way. I have met a lot of people who just don't read fiction much at all, and I've often noticed that they have minds like a steel safe deposit box. And not just any steel safe deposit box, but one that lost its key a long time ago. It really does take imagination, intuition and empathy to think critically about things, to think outside the box or to come up with creative solutions to whatever problem you might be facing. Um, we get into mental ruts and what I've often seen is that people who don't make a general practice of reading fiction often have an underdeveloped imagination. I mean, for example, just, just join a Facebook group, a few Facebook groups with um, reformed people in them. Um, the the most fun you will have talking to people about interesting topics is on the reformed fantasy groups. <laughs> uh, so anyway, so here's why I think fiction is important. Fiction trains your imagination so you can step outside of yourself. You can assess yourself or your situation critically through another person's eyes and come up with a creative solution to the problems you might be facing. It really requires imagination to do this. Um, fiction helps us to consider the impact our words or actions may have on others. It trains us to respect and acknowledge other points of view than our own. Um, it helps us, as, as Kate was mentioning beforehand, it helps us to run war games for our own lives. It helps train us in what C.S. Lewis would call stop responses. It helps us to imagine how we would react in certain circumstances. It puts good and bad examples in front of our eyes so that when we find ourselves in a similar, similar situation we already have a blueprint for how we're going to react. But most of all I think fiction helps us to understand itself. It trains us to understand metaphor, illusion, rhetorical devices, figures of speech um, and this is important for two reasons. First of all if we don't have a mature understanding of literature then we're open to being manipulated by propaganda. Um, you know, I, I actually get this often in, if I'm watching a movie or a TV show with my sisters and they're sitting there going, oh, that poor character, and, I'm, and I just can see so, <laughs> so obviously all the, um, all the things that the show's actors and writers and directors are doing to, um, to bring about your sympathy for this character. Um, another reason why it's important for us to understand how fiction works is because if we don't have a mature understanding of literature then how do we think we're ever going to be able to understand scripture on a mature level? Um, yeah I mean here's, here's an example of what I mean right 
In the book of Acts, the Apostle Peter is shown a vision of unclean animals. He's told to tuck in and eat them. And later he realizes that the point of the vision was God telling him that the time had come for the Gentiles to be received into the church as brothers. Um, now, there is actually a debate over whether Peter's vision meant that it's now okay for Christians to, meet, to, to eat um, unclean meat like pork. And I've always thought that this is the kind of debate that only exists when people don't know how to read a metaphor. If the vision of unclean food signifies the cleansing of the Gentiles, then it certainly signifies the cleansing of the food. You can't use something that remains unclean to symbolize something that has just become clean. That's not how symbols work. <laughs> and this is, this is just one tiny example of how a failure to understand literature will actually make it harder for you to interpret scripture. Scripture is literature, among other things. It is, and I think that, um, I think that that, has led to so many of the misunderstandings of some of the some of the things that we people have such trouble understanding about Paul's letters and that we've argued about. Um, I think Pete, this sort of woodenly literal lack of nuance, inability to understand metaphor or poetry or figures of speech. I think it actually leads to. I think it brings reproach on Christ. And, you know, this is sort of an extreme example, but I've had people tell me that, um, you know, I've had flat earthers passionately argue that the earth must be flat because the psalm says that God hammered the, you know, firmament down like a tent. And I think that when Christians are so unthinking that, or so... Um, I, I th just unthinking that they're unable to work their way through poetic language and and understand the truth that is trying to communicate. Then the world that we're supposedly trying to reach with the truth that they need for their lost and broken souls, they don't look at us and say, "This is a wise and understanding people." You know, <laughs> they they see rightly. This is people who can't tell the difference between a poem and a literal event. And, of hmm. course, the Psalms are poetry. They're songs. You know, of course, parts of the Proverbs are poetry. Of course, there's so much that that I think, um, I think it leads to really, actually serious consequences in, as far as our witness to the world, as far as the way that we treat injustice and, and the way that we minister to people around us when, when we're unable to comb through language and understand um, you know, figures of speech. I understand, yeah, figures of speech. Absolutely agreed. Um, but before we move on, I should probably make a disclaimer. Um, I do believe that fiction is equally important to nonfiction, but I, I do believe that they're important for very different purposes and different people need to focus on different things in their lives. Um, personally, I read in excess of 100 books every year, but I do that because my, that's my job. My job is actually studying, researching, and writing fiction, and I know that very few people have that kind of time to devote to reading. So, you know, I do hope that this podcast inspires you to pick up a novel more often, but if all you come away with is a greater appreciation of fiction and more open mind towards the benefits of reading it, then my job here is done. I, <laughs> I have no um, argument with you if you need to read more, need to prioritize other things. Yeah, I agree with that. Also, I realized when I said I don't read much nonfiction that I am in the middle of two Chesterton audiobooks, but. <laughs> Excellent. Do you want to take the next one? 
Um, let's see. What was the next one? My notes are Fiction all unorganized. Oh. <laughs> Fiction can't be trusted because it affects our emotions. Oh, yes. Okay. You had some really good notes on this, um, but I will go ahead on some of these. So I think um, the fact that it affects, I mean, we touched on this earlier, but the fact that fiction affects our emotions is part of what makes it such a beautiful platform on which to illuminate um, real truths. It, as you said before, it gets past our defenses and past our intellect and past what we think we understand and presents truth to us in um, ways that are moving or surprising or um, unexpected and and communicates to us in a way that sometimes um, just straightforward statements can't, which is, I think, why Jesus used it so much. And, it, you know, I found that just reading fiction for entertainment or for enjoyment has illuminated a lot of um, a lot of spiritual truths, sometimes not meaning to, and sometimes meaning to. You know, there are, um, I don't know if you watch Doctor Who at all. That's not, a, it's not a... It used to. Yeah. <laughs> I've, I've, so, I've seen a lot of Doctor Who. It, it wasn't an example that I was going to bring up, but it comes to mind because um, it's not, it doesn't mean to portray spiritual truths. And in fact, the agenda of the writers is very, very clear in... Mm. <laughs> in, in the things that they're trying to promote and trying to push. But because the law of God is written on all our hearts, the things that they actually promote are so much deeper and, and uh, more beautiful and make the sort of agenda-driven statements, you know, weak and lame by comparison. But but mm. especially in places where it's intended to, like you brought up Lewis and Tolkien and, um, you know, I I have found myself moved to tears by Puddlebum's heroic stance under the mountain and um, Marianne Dashwood realizing how foolish she'd been and how her sister had been suffering alone in Sense and Sensibility. And, and everyone remembers Mr. Beaver saying, um, of course he's not good, but he's safe. You know, and, and understanding... <laughs> Huh? I'm sorry. Of course he's not safe, but he's good. You're right. That was not Freudian. <laughs> of course he's not safe, but he's good. But, you know, and, and there's sort of a thing that clicked in all of us when we read that, especially as children. And we understood God just a little bit better by mm -hmm. that statement. And so, mm -hmm. um, so I think the fact that it moves our emotions is crucial and vital, um, it's just an inextricable part of what fiction is. Right. And it, it, it stirs up our sense of um, injustice and desire to see justice. And like we said earlier, it presents us with, with moral questions that we have to answer. And, um, and it, makes, it gives us a visceral example. Like we see, Scripture tells us about Christ on the cross, and that's the example we have to follow. And, of course, that's the most powerful example there is, but then we see that example played out in various situations over and over again so in many stories and movies and, and how it should look in those situations. And we have to examine it and decide how it should look in those situations. Mm. Yeah. 
I, I heard a lot of it growing up that Christians should be really suspicious of fiction because it affects our emotions. And like, I, I just always found it difficult to understand why this is a bad thing. I mean, if you've got a hammer, you can use it to smash windows, or you can use it to build a house. <laughs> um, and you know, we we did an episode on the topic of emotions a few months back. I would encourage you to listen to that if you haven't already. Um, we don't need to distrust or despise emotion. We you 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 can't actually separate emotion from reason. Both emotion and reason are gifts of God that were both affected by the fall. Both of them need to be trained and disciplined in submission to God's word. Uh, we need to mature our emotions instead of um, distrusting them. And, you know, we have the book of Psalms that helps us to train our emotions. But outside outside um, scripture, probably the best possible tool for doing this is fiction. Um, and this is what we see Nathan doing when he rebuked David. Um, he reawakened David's conscience by telling a story that bypassed his rationalizations to touch his emotions. David got angry at the justice he, injustice he had been told about, which meant that when David turned, when Nathan, sorry, turned around and said, "You are the man," David, that that anger cracked open his heart. Heart. Another thing I often find myself saying is that fiction is the art of empathy. And I would define empathy as the ability to understand and share the feelings of another. Um, the writing coach John Truby, in his marvellous book, The Anatomy of Story, discusses this. He makes the point that an author needs to be able to create empathy between the reader and the characters in the story. And I'll read out what he says. He says, if, if you show the audience why the character chooses to do what he does, they understand the cause of the action, empathy, without necessarily approving of the action itself, sympathy. I think that's an incredibly important um, um, distinction to make. You can understand someone without approving what they're doing. And so when I say that fiction is the art of empathy, that's what I mean. Fiction helps us to understand why people, even people we disagree with, especially people we disagree with, why people act the way they do, and of course, you know, some fiction does try to get us to sympathize with an approved behavior, which we can't in good conscience support as Christians, but that isn't a necessary part of fiction. Empathy is. And I think it's, I think it's, yeah, I think it's a terrible thing to see how many Christians today lack empathy and see that as a virtue. The Bible tells us to bear one another's burdens. The Bible tells us to weep with those who weep. And yet again and again, we set ourselves up as the arbiters of whether someone has a right to weep or not. If someone is weeping, we don't get to tell them to snap out of it. We ought to be feelingly alive to what they are going through. And we ought to understand the reason why they act as they do. And we need to be able to do this without approving of the actions that the person is actually taking. Yes. I wanna I wanna cheer when you say that. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, and and um this has actually been one way that being an author has been sanctifying in my own life. Um uh, our listeners may know that my current major project that I'm working on is a series of novels set during the 200-year history of the medieval crusader states. Um, some of the characters are Muslim, and as I wrote my way through the first draft of the whole series, I found myself having to write Muslim characters. And because I wanted to write good fiction featuring believable characters, I knew I had to be able to empathize with them. And that started me on this deep dive trying to read books by Muslims, to listen to Muslims, to learn about what they believe. 
And this has resulted in a huge transformation of how I think of and relate to Muslims. Um, before I started this project, I had a really hostile view of Muslims, and I didn't even realize it. Um, it was through working on this project that I had to confront my ungodly fear and also actively start cultivating empathy and friendship toward these people. I don't share their religious beliefs, to put it mildly, <laughs> but writing this series is really forcing me to enter into their viewpoint, and I wouldn't have it any other way. It's made me so much better at, um, at understanding what they're going through and how they see the world and um, communicating to them. And this doesn't just go, sorry, go on. Exactly. And, and, that, and I, I believe this doesn't just go for Muslims. Um, it goes for everyone. One, uh, one area where I, I've been feeling challenged lately is um, um, homosexual point, viewpoints in fiction. Um, you know, uh, you, you do get a lot of Christians saying, you know, why would they put a homosexual character in this book or in this movie? They're just trying to normalize it. You know, this is wrong. But it's not actually wrong to have, to admit that, um, that people exist like this and to, um, and to give, give us a viewpoint into how they feel and what their motivations are. And, you know, <laughs> We want to see the whole world bow the knee to Jesus Christ, but we can't do it by lording it over them, by trying to drag them to meet Jesus before they've even had a chance to meet us. We can't do it by ignoring the fact that they exist or pretending that they don't or trying to keep them um, out of the picture. Right. Pretending that the we, world already does, that all knees already are bowed to Jesus Christ and that no, nothing outside exactly. of our worldview exists. Exactly. And, and we have to, we, if, as we as we um, serve the people and the world around us, we really can't browbeat them with what we believe. We have to we have to start by serving, which means loving and caring for them, regardless of whether they eventually bow the knee willingly or not. Um, so that's why I think it's so important for us. That's why I think it's so important for us to read fiction, which features characters that we disagree with, not just for ourselves but also for our ability to relate to the world around us. We really must be able to step outside our own viewpoint and empathize with the viewpoint of others. Yeah. we. I, I don't know why we're so afraid to listen to people. It's like we're afraid that they'll talk us into something, you know? And if, but if, you're so, if we're confident in our own worldview, we're confident in our faith, we know that the truth that is in us is the truth, we shouldn't be so terrified to listen to other people and mm -hmm. and try to understand where they're coming from. You know, Ches exactly. in the book that I was just listening to by D.K. Chesterton, he was talking about how a, a true um, ideologue, or not an ideologue, that's not the word that he used, but... but someone, bigot? Huh? Did he use the word bigot? Is, is, are you Maybe it was the No, it wasn't the word bigot. He did use <laughs> okay. that in a different context, but... He was saying that someone who's truly who's truly passionate about what they believe is eager to listen to the other person, and just like you'd be eager to spy out an enemy meeting, you know, because you want to know what the other person's saying. You're not always interrupting and trying to um, sort of beat them with your own viewpoint. And and I I totally agree. We I watched a comedy uh, routine a couple months ago by someone whose worldview I could not disagree with more. And 
but hearing the world through her eyes and understanding how she saw things, what had been done to her, why she saw things that way and what had contributed to her adopting the worldview she adopted was just tremendously beneficial for me and would help me in those conversations later more than if I hadn't listened to that, you know? Yeah. So fiction can definitely help us with that. Um, Our next myth, fictional heroes are humanist because they're heroes other than Christ saving the world. (laughs) I don't know if you've heard of this one. I've heard it from a lot of, Oh, you have good. <laughs> well, not so good. I've I've heard this from a lot of different people, um, ranging from Vision Forum back in the days when that was a thing to, um, if I'm recalling correctly, a well-regarded Catholic film critic who happened to be talking about the X Men. <laughs> so this argument goes like this: Humankind has one savior, and it's not us; it's Jesus Christ. So if you have a story with an extraordinarily empowered human being saving the world, whether it's Harry Potter who's a wizard, or the X Men with their advanced evolutionary mutant powers, or Captain Marvel who is not merely a mere mortal but also a lady, then. <laughs> And somehow you're saying that humans can become gods and we don't need Jesus Christ, we just need a superhero. And, you know, some some will even go one further and say that particularly women can never be heroes or saviors in a story because in the story of the gospel, women are a symbol of the church, the bride of Christ. So they can only ever be the damsel in distress. Um, side note, I love a good damsel in distress, fantastic trope, just not the only one open to female characters. Absolutely. So, you know, to be honest, this is not a stupid criticism, Um, though I've heard it argued in some pretty silly ways. Um, It is a fact that in the ancient pagan worldviews, it was often thought that humans could ascend to divinity. And I actually had a whole recent episode with Stephen Perks recently um, on the secret history of romantic love, in which we spent a lot of time discussing how that particular heresy has persisted in Christianity right up to the present. So we want to be careful to avoid propping up heresies in the stories we tell. Um, It's just one of the reasons why I'm not keen on the fact that the X-Men are empowered by mutant genes. You know, the evolutionary worldview really is a a worldview that says that we're all on some great chain of being and might theoretically develop all the way to something like divinity. So this is is definitely a valid complaint. Are magic-wielding or super-powered hero characters, or even rationalist logicians like Sherlock Holmes, are these characters preaching that humans can save themselves and become gods? Or if we put it in more secular terms, are superhero movies elitist because they focus entirely on people who have incredible powers? I think a lot of Christians would be happy just to say that empowered characters like Harry Potter or Captain America are Christ figures and just leave it at that. Um, you know, that's not entirely wrong. Anytime you have someone laying down their lives for the good of other people, you have a Christ figure. Uh, in fact, I would argue that you cannot possibly even have a story if you do not have a Christ figure. But I think we need some additional pieces to complete the picture of what's really going on here. And that missing piece of the picture is one that I think a lot of Christians today um, <clears throat> a lot of Christians today completely deny. And I think cessationism is to blame for this. Pessimistic eschatology is to blame for this. Pietism is to blame for this. What many Christians will say today is that ordinary people cannot be heroes. Ordinary people cannot be saviors. Ordinary people cannot imitate Christ in doing justice and mercy. And I understand, I completely understand, we've got to resist making ourselves into gods 
And there's a limit to how much we can imitate Christ because we can never imitate him in his divinity. My problem with this is how many Christians today will say that this means that we can never love him, uh, we can never imitate him in his love of justice, or that we cannot truly rule with him in the heavenly places, or that we cannot really be his ambassadors on this earth, or in a complete nutshell, that we can never be filled with the power of the Holy Spirit. Right. So the fact is that when we see empowered people saving the world, we shouldn't just assume that it's blasphemy. The prophets and apostles of God were men and women filled with the Holy Spirit, and they continue to do incredible things today. Right now, somewhere on this planet, someone is feeding the hungry, releasing captives, casting out demons in the name of Christ. They probably don't have a snazzy outfit like Captain Marvel, but they are the bride of Christ, and they are filled with the power of Christ. When I watched Wonder Woman for the first time, it struck me that having an empowered woman saving the world is actually a deeply Christian idea. Christ's bride is a warrior bride. He shares everything with her, his throne, his spirit, all spiritual blessings. Just, I mean, just read the first two chapters of Ephesians. And this is the basis of having Christ figures in fiction at all. So we really need to have these foundations in place if we're going to understand what's going on in fiction. But yeah, I, I, when I see superhero movies and I see things like mm -hmm. that, what I see over and over again is the, you never see um, sort of betrayal and deceit glorified as things mm -hmm. that these people should do. What you see over and over again is that when an ordinary person has a, a, an extraordinary power or ability to do something, they have a responsibility to use their let's call it privilege to serve mm -hmm. people who have less privilege. That's, that's literally all it is. It's it, you see over and over again, themes of selfless sacrifice of serving, using your power or privilege or whatever it is that you have that other people don't have to serve the downtrodden of, um, honesty of, you know, Marvel is a genius at commenting on, uh, the value of individual life versus the mm -hmm. the greater good and, and commenting on um, um, the principled stance versus the pragmatic or seemingly pragmatic stance. Mm -hmm. And you see the principles that God himself has woven into the universe displayed in these situations over and over again. And, and the, the thing that was really telling to me, you brought up Captain Marvel, is when people were upset about the idea that a female superhero could save the world, I just kept thinking, well, nobody's upset about, I mean, none of these male superheroes are, their powers aren't real either. These aren't things that, that men can naturally do. The idea isn't that we're telling women that they can suddenly become, um, you know, something that they're not any more than we're telling men that they can become something that they're not through these stories. And that's not what we should take out of them. I know that's a little bit of a side topic, but um, I don't think any of us are in danger of believing that salvation of the world rests on our shoulders from watching superhero yeah. movies. And I think, you know, for example, look at the Lord of the Rings. The, the major hero of that book, if there is one, would have to be Samwise Gamgee. Um, the, you know, the humble gardener who saves the world just by being a humble gardener and serving people and, like, you know, the, the wise and the great 
um, like Gandalf, who's the powerful wizard, and Aragorn, who's the you know the prophesied long-awaited king. All they do is sort of distract the enemy while Sam and Frodo do the real work, and you know. And so that's that's a wonderful, beautiful, very epistemologically self-conscious picture of what it looks like when a Christian everyman um, saves the world. But then you know you've got a Marvel movie with something like Thor. You know he's a prince, he's a god, so to speak, a demigod. But he's still got you know his whole his whole plot in the first movie is about him learning to. Um, lay down his life to sacrifice himself, not to rely on his privilege, um, not to rely on his hammer, not to solve things by smashing them. Right. And that he's not even about, worthy of the hammer unless he has these principles. Exactly. It's about it's about some it's about an Aragorn learning how to be a Samwise, if if I could put it that way. <clears throat> so even though the heroes come from very different um starting points they're still demonstrating basically the same truth which is that it's the gentiles who lord it over each other and it shall not be so among you always the same always the same and it's just god is communicating it to us in so many ways exactly but and it seems like every movie i watch these days intentionally or unintentionally is an anti-power religion sort of message because people recognize on a fundamental level that power is meant to be used in service of the vulnerable you know yeah do you want to um do you want to take the next one fiction isn't christian unless it contains a christian character and or a salvation scene (laughs) oh um this is I think I think a lot of this one comes from Christians viewing fiction either I think Christians see fiction as serving one of two purposes either um entertainment that they don't have to feel guilty about and so mm-hmm. it's sanitized of everything that could possibly exist in the world um as a side note I don't know if you remember this but a few years back when the blind side came out do you remember that yeah, it I was. Think so. Yeah, a lot of Christian bookstores. There was some sort of um, big outrage, and a lot of Christian bookstores were trying to get it off the shelves because a character in it said a vulgar word, and and the character was a bad character, and it was not something that they were glorifying. It was something that they were clearly portraying as bad behavior, but it in for some reason to a lot of Christians, Christian entertainment can't contain anything that um, it, that even depicts bad behavior, even though the Bible does all the time. You can only depict things that are good and, and quote-unquote clean. Um, or they see fiction as strictly an evangelism tool. And they give the world um, not enough credit for being clever and intuitive and they think that the only method of evangelism is sort of an incantational preach the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ and nothing else. And if you don't do that, then um, you're, you're failing somehow to communicate Christ to people. 
And I think we've already demonstrated multiple times in this how that's not the case, how, um, you know, using using different story tropes and, and um, storytelling techniques bypasses people's natural defenses and finds a, a way to talk to them on a different level where they're more able to empathize, more able to understand. Um, and I think, and I think you're going to speak to this better than I will, but we've already talked about how so many of these stories do communicate what they communicate biblical truth, even if they don't mean to. And sometimes even when the writer intended to communicate something totally opposite because, Absolutely. because of the way that, um, God wrote the universe. Um, oh, yeah, I think I think that's about it on my notes for that. Sure. Yeah, and um, I've I've often noticed that Christians, even even when they do accept fiction, they will often, you know. I heard Christians look at me funny when I say that Jane Austen wrote Christian fiction, for instance. <laughs> um, and what I meant by that was that Austen is, in, in my fairly well-informed opinion, she was a sincere believer who wrote books that were deeply affected by her faith. But people will tend to think, oh, well, you know, there wasn't an overt presentation of the gospel in her books, so um, she, you know, she can't have been a Christian author writing Christian books. Um, that makes no sense. Well, see, our, our faith affects so much about the stories we tell, even on a purely technical level. I mean, just the mere fact that our stories have a beginning that develops through a middle to a definite end instead of cycling endlessly through the same characters and plot, and unless you're J.J. Abrams remaking Star Wars, of course, that's a different story. <laughs> but the idea is that history starts somewhere and then progresses through a series of irreversible developments and arrives at a final judgment where all the characters get a reward for their actions. That's that's an idea that the world never knew until Christianity. Before Christianity, the ancients believed that history was cyclical. Um, and sure, yep, their, their stories still did largely follow a fairly linear structure with resolution at the end, but those stories were at odds with their actual beliefs about how the world worked. Even today... Um, as you pointed out, many authors aren't Christian, but they continue to use Christian presuppositions to tell their stories. Um, the, one of the biggest examples of this is the whole idea that a story should end with poetic justice, with the characters um, suffering the consequences of their actions. This is completely founded on the Christian doctrine that whatever a man sows, that shall he reap. It's founded on the whole concept of the final judgment. Um, there's a classic 1974 writing manual titled The Techniques of the Selling Writer by Dwight B. Swain. In that book, he wrote, We need to feel as if how a man behaves, his personal performance, helps to decide the way he fares in this life. We like the idea of individual worth and individual reward. To that end, in each story you write, you establish a cause-effect relationship between your focal character's behaviour and his fate, his deeds and his rewards. You pit your characters against danger. You let him demonstrate whether he deserves to win or lose. You fit the story's outcome to his behaviour in terms of poetic justice. Now, Swain, not a believer, he asks, isn't this a childish pattern ill-suited 
to mature readers? And he answers that question with, most American readers believe in the pattern he outlined, the cause-effect relationship set forth. It therefore is the most effective approach to a mass audience. You see, he doesn't have a deep theological foundation for believing that a man will reap what he sows. The Bible says, do not be deceived, God is not mocked. Dwight Swain says, eh, well, it's what sells books. <laughs> and it's, it sells books not just because we are living in a world that has been shaped by the gospel, but because even in a pre-gospel world, humans have a thirst for justice and they cannot feel satisfied with anything less. Right. Uh, here's another foundational axiom of storytelling, which precepts are blah. Here's another axiom of storytelling that presupposes a Christian worldview. Characters must not be passive. They must have agency in the plot. Um, here's another classic book on writing, Screenplay, The Foundations of Screenwriting by Sid Field. He writes, It's important to remember that when you're writing a screenplay, the main character must be active. She must cause things to happen not let things happen to her. Film is behaviour, action is character, and character action. What a person does is who he is, not what he says. Then again, in the in the Art of Dramatic Writing, um, La Jose Gris states, not everyone can be a pivotal character that is a protagonist. A man whose fear is greater than his desire, or a man who has no great all-consuming passion, or one who has patience and does not oppose, cannot be a pivotal character. So what these people are saying is that if your story is going to be any good at all, the main character needs to take action based on what he believes. And if this sounds familiar, it's straight out of the book of James. Be doers of the word and not hearers only deceiving yourselves. James says that if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, a passive believer rather than an active believer, then he's like someone who looks in a mirror and then goes away and forgets what he just saw. But whoever looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it, not being a forgetful hearer but a doer of the work, this man shall be blessed. So these are just some of the ways um, that a book can be Christian and tell the truth about God's world, even if God's name is never mentioned. But we could take it further too. Um, in ancient paganism, the Greek and Roman heroes were always men who were primarily concerned with their own reputation and glory. Um, and whoever could impose his will on weaker men and gain immortal fame, he was a hero. When Jesus came, he redefined the hero as a suffering servant who sacrifices himself for weaker men rather than lording it over them, as we mentioned. And this was wildly at odds with what the ancient world believed about heroism. Today we can only begin to understand the difference if we think about the fact that today it's apparently a matter of Muslim doctrine that Jesus did not die a criminal's death on the cross, but only fainted because God could never let one of his prophets perish in such a shameful way. Um, these days we think nothing of writing fiction in which a person will willingly saves the day by giving up his life, by enduring torment, or by accepting some kind of shame or dishonor. Just look at um, The Dark Knight. Um, but that would have been unthinkable uh, before the cross. That's a great point. The bottom line is that Christian presuppositions do have a profound impact on our stories and do that often without ever explicitly mentioning the name of God. And that's how it should be. Our faith should affect every area of our lives. Um, it, and when we're writing fiction, it should affect the decisions we make about what kind of characters we have, how our plots develop. It's not just a pretty moral that we slap onto the surface after the story is almost done. 
Rather, our stories are built on God's truth at the very deepest level. And this is the only way to write good Christian fiction. Um, I think I see many Christians assuming that fiction should fulfill the same basic purposes as an apologetic seminar, but that completely overlooks what fiction is good for. Fiction is good for showing people what real justice, mercy and humility looks like rather than simply telling them. That's another axiom of um, storytelling, show, don't tell. Yes, yes, exactly. And it's, so it's when, when you start telling people to be Christians that your fiction starts to be preachy. It's when the Christian content is slapped on top of the story rather than being deeply organic to the plot that the artwork suffers. Um, I actually write about Christian characters all the time. I write historical fantasy set in medieval times, and many of my characters are Christians who are trying to make ethical decisions, and so they constantly talk about their faith and what it might require them to do. I market my fiction both to believers and unbelievers, and I have never had anyone complain about preachy content because I'm just showing Christians being authentic Christians. Right. So at this stage you might be wondering, if I can tell a Christian story just by having active characters saving the world in a sacrificial manner in a story with a start, middle and end, then doesn't that mean that non-Christians can produce God honoring fiction as well? And I believe the answer is yes, but we might take a break right now and come back to this discussion in our next episode because this is getting pretty long. Thank you for listening to The Monstrous Regiment. Thank you for listening to The Monstrous Regiment. We hope this podcast inspires and equips you to go and exercise dominion for Christ's kingdom. Terrible as an army with banners. The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology. Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. We can talk all day long about these things, but if we fail to put them into practice, then we fail as ambassadors of Jesus Christ, our King. Subscribe now to your favorite Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network shows. Or you can subscribe to the Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed, where all of the content we produce, including the audiobooks and audio articles, will pop up as soon as they are available. And don't forget to visit ReconstructionistRadio.com to volunteer as a narrator or to partner with this ministry financially. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and His kingdom.